Good morning. Welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. It's good to see all you guys. Um, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 61 and stand for the reading of God's Word. All right, Psalm 61. Hear my cry of lamentation, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength before the enemy. Let me sojourn in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. You will add days to the king's life. His years will be from generation to generation. He will sit enthroned before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may guard him. So I will sing praise to your name forever as I pay my vows day by day. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In our passage this morning, David brings us into a moment of crisis in his life. We know that this is a psalm of David because of the superscription, which is just a fancy word for that little bit of text that we see above a lot of the psalms. The superscription for our psalm this morning simply reads, for the choir director on a stringed instrument of David. While this psalm is written in a moment of crisis, we don't know exactly what moment of crisis it is. There's no historical context given to us to help us understand that. Even so, some suggest that this psalm was written after David was king due to verse 6, which refers to the king and thus could have been written when David was exiled from Jerusalem because of Absalom. Others suggest that this could have been written when David was fleeing Saul before he became king. At the end of the day, we don't know and it actually doesn't really matter. We don't have to know those details in order for this psalm to Uh, speak to our hearts. It doesn't take anything away from the psalm uh, by not having that information. So with that in mind, let's jump in and take a look at the first point in our outline, David cries out to God. Verses 1 and 2 read, Hear my cry of lamentation, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. While we don't know exactly what the circumstances are that surround this psalm, there are two specific details that we can know. First, we can reasonably conclude that David is crying out to God in a situation where David can't go to the sanctuary in Jerusalem. David says in verse 2, from the end of the earth I call to you. And the implication is that David is far off from Jerusalem and thus far off from the place in which David would offer praise and worship to God. He is in a place that seems distant, remote, and far away, a place that in David's words is at the end of the earth, a place that is possibly even geographically far away from the sanctuary and thus far away from the assembly of believers. Ellen Ross provides the following insight on this. End of the earth is 
a common enough expression in Scripture. It simply refers to a remote area in the distance or in a far country. The language is no doubt being used figuratively, a hyperbole, to intensify the psalmist's feeling of alienation and despair over being some distance from the sanctuary. To the believer, Jerusalem and its central sanctuary was the center of the earth. He feels far away from it because of his yearning to be there. How far away he was from the sanctuary is impossible to say, but if he could not go there, it may as well have been in some remote land. The second thing we can reasonably conclude about this circumstance is David's emotional and spiritual states. We see this in the second half of verse 2. When David says, when my heart is faint, David is at the end of his rope. It's very possible that he is discouraged. David doesn't have much left within himself. Whatever the circumstances are, he is overwhelmed, he is worn out, he is faint. His circumstances are much bigger than he is. And isn't it true that both of these are very real possibilities in our own lives? It is very possible that at some point in your life, at some point in my life, we may experience a time, whether on an individual level or even on a congregational level, that we will be unable to gather together, where we are unable, or, where we are unable to or are even prevented from coming together to offer our praise and worship to the Lord corporately, to partake in the Lord's Supper and fellowship together. There are some, in fact, that are a part of this body that are experiencing this right now. There are those who are a part of this body that due to illness or physical limitation are unable to gather together with us this morning. There's also the very real possibility that a day will come when the government under which we live could attempt to prevent us from gathering together here as a body of believers. Now, let me just say it would take a lot to keep us from gathering, and we would take great measures to ensure that we continued to gather. But even so, those circumstances are not out of the realm of possibility, and it would be foolish to assume that we will always have the freedom to assemble and speak the truths of the Scriptures from this pulpit. So the question that we should be asking ourselves is, how, how should we respond? What should we do when, God forbid, we are in a place, a place like David, where he was crying out to God from the end of the earth with a heart that is faint? So what can we do? What does our text teach us this morning about dealing with these kinds of circumstances in our own lives? The first thing that we can do is something that we've already seen from David this morning. Namely, we can cry out to the God whom we worship. In verse 1, David describes this cry as a cry of lamentation. The word in Hebrew for this phrase is renah. And it can have both a positive meaning as well as a negative meaning. In the positive sense, it can mean a cry of jubilation or rejoicing. But that is not how this word is used in our text this morning. No, in our text this morning, it is used in the negative sense. To communicate David's cry as one of lament, as a cry that could even be constituted as wailing. This is a deep place 
of emotion for David. To be in circumstances in which David is unable to be in the sanctuary, where he is prevented from worshiping the Lord together with fellow believers. David is actually in distress. And this speaks to the level of importance and value that David places on gathering together corporately, gathering together in the sanctuary to worship the Lord with fellow believers. It is of such importance to David that when he can't do it, that when he is prevented from doing so, it brings him to a place of wailing and lamentation. And the question that I'd like each and every one of us to consider this morning is, do we place the same value on being here every Sunday morning to worship the Lord together? Is this time that we are spending together right now the most important appointment in your calendar and in my calendar? Is it the most important appointment in your calendar this week and next week and the week after that? Is this activity of corporately worshiping Yahweh together on the Lord's Day, is this activity the activity that you look forward to more than any other activity that you might have scheduled in your week? Is what we do here on Sunday morning, the taking of the Lord's Supper, the offering of praise and worship through song and through the preaching of God's Word and the fellowship of the saints, is this more important to you than the professional sporting event that might be on TV today? What about your child's sporting event? Is it more important to you than a concert or regular camping and hiking trips? Is it more important than hanging out with your friends who don't attend church or sleeping in to get a few extra winks before Monday kicks in? Or what about that DIY project at home that's taking a bit longer than you had planned for? I encourage you to really examine the priorities of your life and ask yourself if you place the same importance on being here in the sanctuary that we see David doing in our psalm this morning. Consider these words found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, which says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, what we do here on Sunday mornings is the most important thing of our week. And here's why. There is no activity more important than remembering what Christ has done through partaking of the Lord's Supper. And there is no activity more important than offering our worship and praise to Yahweh corporately through the singing of hymns and the preaching of His Word. What we do here on Sunday mornings is not about us. On the contrary, it's about the Lord. What we do on Sundays is special because the body of Christ gathers together corporately to worship our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the body, to worship Him together through song and through hearing the Word preached and through partaking of the Lord's Supper. So, husbands and wives, if one of you can't make it because of work or illness and the other isn't needed then encourage your spouse to come to church on their own or to come to church even with the kids. All I'm saying, all I'm saying is that whatever you do and however this looks for each of you, 
ensure that you are giving the assembly of the brethren the same amount of importance in your week that David is giving to it in our psalm this morning. All right, something else that we should notice and appreciate is that while David is in this place of lament, he does not turn inward with self-pity because of his circumstances. Even in his faintness of heart, he does not give up. He does not think that all is lost. Why do you think this is the case? Because when David says in verse 1, give heed to my prayer, he knows that God will do it. And I want to encourage you that when you might be in a place like David is in our text this morning, to reject the temptation to have an inward-focused self-pity, to reject the temptation to say that all is lost, but instead remember the God whom you serve and know that no matter how far away you are, no matter the limiting circumstances you might be in which are keeping you from coming to worship Him together corporately, that there is no place too far off, too remote, too distant that God does not hear the prayers of a righteous man. The first part of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 tells us that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer. And so, if you are one of the righteous, if you, like David, are one of God's people, then God's eyes are toward you and His ears attend to your prayers. In 1 Peter 3, 12, uh, in 1 Peter 3, 12, Peter is actually quoting Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16, which say that God's ears are open to our cry for help. And isn't that where David is right now in our text? He is a righteous man crying out to God for help. And Psalm 34 tells us that God's ears are open to those cries, that when you, like David, cry out in lamentation, that God hears you. And so David, a righteous man, in crying out to God, as David pleads for God to heed his prayer, notice what he actually asks God for. David asks God to lead him to the rock that is higher than he is. And as we've seen, David is overwhelmed. David is lamenting. He is faint of heart. It is very possible that David's circumstances are such that he's been physically prevented from being in Jerusalem to offer praise to Yahweh, that, that David is under attack, or that he is being pursued, and that he is having to hide in the wilderness. These are all things that happened in the life of David. We just don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But whatever the circumstances are in David's life, they are beyond him. He can't handle them. They're too big for him. Said another way, David is too weak, too frail, too small. He doesn't have the wisdom or the wherewithal to handle what is going on in his life. And by the way, that's in addition to not being able to come to the sanctuary. And so he does the only thing he can do. He turns to the one who is not weak. He turns to the one who is neither frail nor small. He turns to the one who is the source of all wisdom and knows exactly what to do. He turns to the one who sovereignly ordained his circumstances to take place exactly as they are, but with a purpose, a purpose that is good for David and will bring glory to the God whom he worships. He turns to God. 
the one true and living God who spoke two trillion galaxies into existence from nothing. He turned to his God, the God whom he worshipped. He turned to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the Bible that you are holding in your hands right now this morning. This God is the rock that is higher than he is. Alan Ross makes the following observation about David's petition. He says, the prayer for leading is a prayer for direction and enablement. He wants to be guided back to God's sovereign protection, here referred to as the rock. The Lord God is inaccessibly high or exalted over the affairs of humans, and so his protection is out of the reach of the enemies. If David is guided back to God's presence, he will be in a safe place indeed. Now, another important observation is that David knows that God has to be the one to lead him to this rock. It's not something that David can do on his own apart from God. After all, he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This rock is not something that David could come to on his own. He must be led to it, and it must be God that takes him there. The fact that David recognizes this brings to light one of the character traits that is a mark of the righteous, and that is humility. David relies in nothing of himself and instead turns to God and asks God to do the work necessary to bring David to the rock that is higher than he. As human beings, we have this tendency to think that we don't need God's help that we can do it ourselves, or we operate in such a way that we forget about God and strive forward in our own wisdom, in our own strength, and we take on a hard yoke and a heavy burden. And God has a way of letting us move forward in our self-assurance, in our, in our self-dependence and our self-esteem until we are driven to a place where we can no longer carry the burden and trials of life. And have, and have no choice but to turn to Yahweh in our failure and humbly submit in dependence on God and esteem God and find our assurance in God. David is an example of this humility for us. He shows us that we are to place the reins of our lives into the hands of God and let God take us to the rock instead of trying to get there in and of ourselves. And when we do this, our yoke becomes easy, our burden becomes light, and we truly find rest for our souls. And so now as we consider the rock, the place of God's sovereign protection, the perfectly safe presence of God, let's turn our attention to the second point in our outline, who God is for David. Verses 3 and 4 read as follows, For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength before the enemy. Let me sojourn in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, Selah. We learn something about David's relationship with God here. We learn something about who God is for David and what God has done for him. And we also learn what David hopes God will be for David. David prays that God would lead him to the rock that is higher than he because he knows this rock already. He's been there before. The place that he desires is very familiar to him. And verse 3 sheds light on this. 
The rock that is higher than David has been a refuge for him. The rock that is higher than David has been a tower of strength before David's enemy. Notice these are past tense. The, this rock has been these things already in past circumstances for David. And so it is David's hope that the, the rock, that Yahweh, would be these things yet again for him. And it's not just his hope, it's his conviction. It's his confidence. It's the pillow upon which he lays his head at night. And so we see that, the one, that one of the things that will help us in facing a similar situation to what David is facing, circumstances that in the moment don't seem like God is our refuge, that in the moment don't seem like God is a tower of strength for us, that we should first remember those times in the past when God has been our refuge. That we should remember those times in the past when God has been a tower of strength for us. And in remembering these things, to know that because God is immutable in His character, that God is still a refuge for us. And that God is still a tower of strength before our enemies. And not only that God in these, is these things for us in the moment, but that He will continue to be these things for us as the circumstances of our lives move forward. The immutability of God is God's perfect unchangeability in His essence, character, purpose, and promises. This immutability means that God doesn't change and therefore, God will be the same for us today as He was for us yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and so on. And so by remembering who He has been for us in the past, we can be completely confident that Yahweh will still be that same God for us right now in the present and in the future and that He doesn't change. Psalm 102 Verses 25 to 27, of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will remain. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. Malachi 3.6, for I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. David knows this about God. David knows that the God he worships is unchanging. And because it has been David's experience that God has been his refuge for him in the past, he will also be a refuge for him today, and God will be a refuge for David forever. Consider these words from John Flavel on the value of our life experiences. What is experience if not the bringing down of the divine promises to the test of sense and feeling? It is our duty to believe the promises without trials and experiments. But it is easier to do so after many trials. Your own and others' experiences carefully recorded and seasonably applied 
are food to your faith and a cure for many of your fears in a suffering day. John Flavel's words only make sense if God is unchanging. Our experiences and our afflictions are only worth remembering. They are only worth being encouraged by. They are only a source of strength in our present circumstances is if God is the same today as He was in our past circumstances. Our past experiences and afflictions are only a source of hope if God's promises are as true today as they were yesterday, if God's promises are as true today as they were the last time we leaned into them. And they are. So, in experiencing God as his refuge and strong tower in the past, David asks Yahweh to be his refuge and strong tower for him now. With this in mind, let's turn our attention to verse 4, where we see David ask God to let him sojourn in God's tent forever. Something interesting to note is that in each of these metaphors, a refuge, a strong tower, a tent, and eventually the shelter of God's wings, each of these metaphors are increasingly warm and intimate. They move increasingly closer to the nurturing and loving presence of God. And what we learn from this is that God is not just an idea to David. God is not just a doctrinal concept. God is not out there for David. No, God is very real and right here for David. God is personal and intimate for David. David has a true relationship with the Lord. The affections of David's heart are for the Lord, and he loves the Lord. We have to be careful of being a people who are only full of head knowledge, but nothing has made it down to our hearts. Nothing has impacted our souls. Nothing has stirred our emotions. Nothing has actually worked in our lives to change us on the inside. Don't get me wrong. God has given us our minds to use them and use them vigorously in coming to a deep understanding of His Word. But what a tragedy that is to know about God, but not to know God personally. My prayer is that as we hear God's Word faithfully preached from this pulpit week in and week out, that every one of us would be changed, that every one of us would be growing in not just our knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also our love for Him. That every one of us would be being conformed into the image of Christ. And that we would be a people who are satisfied in Christ. A people whose lives are centered around Christ and, that, and, and what He has done for us. And so in verse 4, David asks that God would let him sojourn in God's tent forever. And this is no small request. God's tent likely refers to the tabernacle, that place in which God's very presence dwelled. It is as if David is asking God to let him abide in Zion itself. It is as if David is asking God to let him dwell in heaven right where God is. This is a much more intimate place than a place of refuge or a strong tower. And this is David's hope. David hopes in the fact that because God has been a refuge for him, because God has been a strong tower for him, that he will be allowed by God to sojourn in his tent, that he will be allowed into the tabernacle, and that he will be allowed to be in the very presence of Yahweh. And David knows that only a certain kind of person may sojourn in Yahweh's tent. Only a certain kind of person is permitted to stand in the intimate presence of God. 
Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is also a psalm of David. It's a psalm where we learn the answer to this question. We learn exactly who that person is. That person that is permitted to sojourn in God's tent. Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2 read, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? And here's the answer. He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So who is this man that may sojourn in the Lord's tent? He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Blameless, righteous, true. These are the qualities of such a man that may sojourn in Yahweh's tent. And these are the qualities of no man that has ever lived except one, Jesus Christ. If you want to be in God's presence as David is asking to be, then apart from Christ, it is impossible. Because no one apart from Christ is blameless, righteous, and true. And so David, in what little he understands about the Messiah, is relying on Christ. He's relying on Christ to be considered worthy of sojourning in Yahweh's tent. We've seen this in his request for God to lead him in humility, to lead him to the rock that is higher than he is. And we will also see it in just a moment that this is David's future expectation of God's fulfilled promise in the Messiah. So bearing these things in mind, let's turn our attention to the final thing that David hopes for, which is found in verse 4 of our text this morning. David says, let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Here we see an even more tender and intimate place with God, if that's even possible. This is not just a request to be in the presence of God. Now, David is asking God to be in his tender, loving care. This phrase, the shelter of your wings, is a picture of a mother bird covering her chicks with her wings. It is a picture of true closeness to God, literally right at the very breast of God. And how appropriate this is when we remember what David said in verse 2, from the end of the earth I call to you. David is so far away from having what he is asking God for here in verse 3 and verse 4, and yet it is his heart's desire to have it. So much so that in the midst of his lamenting, it is all that David can do but ask God to bring him back, to lead him to the rock, to let him sojourn in Yahweh's tent, and to let him take refuge in the shelter of Yahweh's wings. And then we see verse 4 finish with this word, Selah. Selah is an instruction by the psalmist to pause, to meditate, to not move on too quickly. And to consider what has just been said. To remember who God is for David. And to know that this is who God is for you as a believer too. And so, as we consider and meditate on these things, let's look at the next point in your outline. David's confident expectation and hope. David says in verses 5 to 7, For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name. 
You will add days to the king's life. His years will be from generation to generation. He will sit enthroned before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and truth that they may guard him. Isn't it amazing what happens when you take your eyes off of your circumstances and put them on the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what David has done. This psalm started with cries of lamentation, which turned into prayer. And in praying, David remembered God's faithfulness to him. And that awakened David's desire to be even closer to Yahweh. And now we see David filled with great expectation and hope for what God will do. David has gone from lamenting cries of despair to hopeful expectation and confidence merely by taking his eyes off of his circumstances and placing them on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing has changed but David's gaze. When you look upon Yahweh, you see your circumstances rightly as David does now. So let's now take a look at how David sees these same circumstances which which he was previously lamenting over but now has great expectation and hope in. In verse 5, David brings to light what he has previously made va- that, he, that he has previously made vows to God and that God heard those vows. Let's not miss the significance of God hearing David's past vows because it means that God met David in whatever the situation those vows were given and worked on behalf of David just as David is asking for God to, to do now for him. God was previously the rock that is higher than David. God was previously a refuge for David, and God was previously a tower of strength before David's enemies. And so this remembrance of God's faithfulness to David is at the root of his confidence that God will give heed to the prayer that he is offering now. And David's confidence in this is put on display for all to see in the verses that follow. First, we see that God heard David's vows because David was a part of a peculiar people. As Matthew Henry says, there is a peculiar people in the world that fear God's name, that with a holy awe and reverence accept of and accommodate accommodate themselves to all the discoveries he is pleased to make of himself to the children of men. And so David was a recipient of this inheritance, the inheritance given by God to those who fear the name of Yahweh. To fear God is to give a particular reverence to God because of who he is in light of who we are. And David feared God. David knew his position before a holy and righteous God. Second, we see David's expectation and hope in what he anticipates God will do in fulfilling the covenant that God made with David. It is interesting that the verb tense here changes from the first person to the third person. Here David is speaking both of himself and of Christ Christ, who is David's descendant, and thus the fulfillment of the covenant made by God with David. It is conceivable that David could be talking mainly about himself in verse 6, where he says, you will add days to the king's life, and his years will be from generation to generation, speaking of David's offspring. But verse 7 is altogether different and speaks of the future Messiah. It speaks of Jesus Christ when it says, he will sit enthroned before God forever. 
Jesus Christ is the true, eternal, and glorious King of kings and Lord of lords who will reign in majesty and glory and honor and sit enthroned before God forever and ever. Concerning this covenant made with David, we read in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13, when your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Further, in 2 Samuel seven sixteen, we read, And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. God's covenant with David, the David's house, and his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom, is accomplished through the Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of David and sits at the right hand of the Father even now. And this is not an obscure or unknown truth. It is literally literally found throughout the whole of the Old and the New Testaments. And it was the expectation of the Jewish people that the Messiah would be king. They just missed that Christ would first come as a suffering servant to conquer sin and death before he would return as the conquering king. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, Note, these are not titles given to mere human children. These are titles of sovereign deity. Isaiah continues in verse 7, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. So this child spoken of in Isaiah 9-6, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is none other than Jesus Christ himself as spoken of by the angels who announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. This baby spoken of by the angels to the shepherds is the same child spoken of in Isaiah 9-6 as the fulfillment of the covenant that was established by God with David, a covenant that is accomplished by the zeal of Yahweh. Nothing can stop this. Nothing can interfere and prevent the plans of Yahweh from being accomplished. And David knows this. This is a part of his confident expectation and hope. David even wrote about it in Psalm 115, verse 3, which says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And we read further in Daniel 4, verses 34 and 35, the musings of the humbled king of Babylon. Many years after David was alive, this humbled pagan king of Babylon was brought low and broken by God. And he says the following about God. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes toward heaven, and my knowledge returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, 
and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? Two things stick out to me here in the reflections of this pagan king. First, this pagan king knows that nothing can stand against the zeal of Yahweh. He knows that God is sovereign and does all that he pleases. He knows this personally. Second, in relation to David's expectation in our psalm this morning, when Nebuchadnezzar lifts up his eyes toward heaven and the knowledge returns to him, notice that he speaks of this same everlasting kingdom of God, a kingdom that endures from generation to generation. And this is language very similar to David's in our psalm this morning. So in the very same thoughts of a pagan king, thoughts primarily about man's total inability to stop God from doing all that God intends to do, a core component of, his, of this sovereignty of God is the preservation of the generations of kings descended from David and culminating in Christ sitting enthroned before God forever. And then back in our psalm, we see at the end of verse 7, a point, loving kindness and truth, that they may guard him. And so here, too, we see David's confidence that it is God's loving kindness and truth which guard and preserve this everlasting king and his kingdom. And it is no coincidence then that this Christ, that this Messiah came as a child, came as a suffering servant who would grow up and deal with the problems that plagued all of humanity, even all of creation, this problem of sin. He came as a a good man, sorry, he came as a God-man entering into his creation to experience the suffering and temptation that we all face, but without sin. And he did this. He came as the perfect, pure, and spotless lamb, foreshadowed in all the bloody sacrifices performed in the temple in Jerusalem, the same temple, the same sanctuary that David longs to return to in our passage this morning. This Messiah, Jesus Christ, the final and complete sacrifice, died on a cross and endured the full and furious wrath of God that we deserve to bear. He, as our substitute, satisfied the Father's wrath completely to the last drop and thus atoned for the sin of a peculiar people, of a people who fear the name of of Yahweh, of the people who come to the foot of that cross of Christ in humility, of the people who are broken over their sins and repentant of their sin, of the people who have faith in this Messiah, in this Christ, placing our trust in Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. And thus, this truth and loving kindness of God established a way for the poor, broken sinner to find salvation. And that same truth and loving kindness now works to guard King Jesus in his eternal everlasting kingdom. This is literally the theme of the whole of the Bible. And the question that you have to answer this morning, the question that you must wrestle with is, are you a part of this kingdom? Are you a part of this particular group of people who has been saved from the wrath of God? Are you one of these peculiar people who have the inheritance of those who fear 
the name of Yahweh? Are you one of these peculiar people who will one day enter into the full, unadulterated presence of God to fulfill your created purpose by worshiping Him and enjoying Him forever? If you are not one of these peculiar people, I implore you to consider Jesus Christ, the eternal and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Consider this Christ and embrace Him as your Lord and as your Savior. Follow David's example. Cry out to God and ask Him to bring you to the rock that is higher than you are. Come to Him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing else will save you. Not your own good deeds, not your intellect, not any promise of another religion. Only Christ can save you because only Christ has conquered death, the consequence of sin, by not only dying on that cross, but also rising from the dead and ascending to be seated right now on the throne of glory as the eternal King, which David is praying with great confidence and expectant hope for. Consider this Christ and come to Him today in humility and in repentance for your sin. And if you do, you will be counted among this peculiar and oh-so-blessed group of people who have the inheritance of those who fear the name of Yahweh, who have salvation and who have Jesus Christ as their own. And so it is with no surprise then that we see David's daily worship as the final point, point in our outline This morning, David began this psalm with crying out in lamentation and ends with a declaration, with a a vow to sing praise to Yahweh's name forever. And in doing so, he is paying his vows day by day. And so we see that these are vows of worship. David is exactly where he should be. He may not be where he wants to be geographically, but now he's right where he needs to be spiritually. David is worshiping his Lord and fulfilling his created purpose. And you know what? We have something even better than David. David did not have God dwelling within him. David could not know what it is to have Jesus Christ dwelling in his heart. And so we can see, and so we can, in a sense, be with God in a way that David could not. David had to go to the temple to worship in the sanctuary, whereas Christ is in us, the hope of glory. We as believers who look back on the historical event of the cross can enjoy the presence of God every day because Christ resides in our hearts. Consider Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 in which he prays that every believer would know experientially and fully what it is to have Christ dwelling in their hearts. And this is my prayer for us as we close this morning. Paul says in Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all... The fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an amazing, amazing word from you in this scripture. Father, I pray that you would help us to, like David, remember what you've done for us in the past, who you've been for us in the past, and Lord, that you would cause us to have an expectant, confident hope in you as we look to what's happening in the future. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives. Lord, may you be the rock that is higher than we are in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.